Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Uh, between the revival experience of uh, a call for kids ministry and, uh, and the encouragement to husbands of fathers, I feel like I don't really have much to share. I almost just want to invite the worship team to come back up and we'll pray and go out our day. But um, uh, forgive me, I'm just getting over um, like a sinus thing. So if my voice sounds worse than usual, it's, uh, it's that. And, uh, and whatever I say that you don't like, we're going to blame it on the advanced uh, Dayquil that I've been taking all morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue our study through the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, as you're going there, um, uh, I want to pray just one more time uh, for, um, uh, for us as we get into God's Word. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll pray for us. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, study your Word and to uh, come uh, with a sense of confidence that you are going to speak. And Jesus, I ask that Holy Spirit, you would come and that you would fill us and that you would help us to be humble and receptive to your word. Uh, we don't believe, God, that this time is just another TED talk of information, uh, but we're, we're, what we need is, is transformation, Jesus, uh, to actually experience you and who you are and in a way that that would challenge us and encourage us and give us hope and would help us to ultimately look more like you and to become more like you so that the lives we live here as a church would be marked by you and that the lives we live in with a world that does not believe in you uh, would be compelling. And so God, we invite you into this time we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would encourage us, that you would shape us. We ask that you would take um, these next 35 minutes and make them into something uh, spiritual and impactful uh, for our good, God, and, and ultimately for your glory. And so we ask that you would come now, and it's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, um, so we are in a series going through 1 Timothy, and uh, we are talking specifically about the church uh, over this book, First and Second Timothy, and today uh, in chapter 3, we're talking specifically about the role of deacons. Um, but before I get into that, I want, to, I want to just pull back a little bit and remind us of what we are doing in this study. As we talk about the church, um, it should be no surprise to anyone uh, in here that the church, that the Christian church, is not really held in very high regard in today's culture. And there's actually some legitimate reasons for that. Um, you can look at um, what's going on in media as uh, very recently with the Hillsong documentary that came out. You can look at a couple years ago when the Mars Hill podcast came out that there is, uh, is, is showing um, where there has been failures in leadership and an expression of church that it has done remarkable damage to the name and the reputation of Jesus that because of some of the failures that we've seen from leaders and their responsibilities, that it impacts and it starts to call into question for sincere believers about what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be in a church? What does it mean to uh, see a healthy model of church expressed? What does leadership look like in the church? What should it look like? What shouldn't it look like? 
There are a lot of ex examples uh, uh, that we have seen of unhealthy expressions of that. Similarly, there are tons of good, godly, healthy expressions of what church is supposed to look like. But Paul, as he's writing to this church in Ephesus, he's essentially trying to address the same type of things. He's writing to this church to encourage them about what does it mean to be a healthy, godly church in the midst of Ephesus? What does it look like internally to have relationships that are marked by love and are marked by sacrifice and are marked by care that are not marked by backbiting and gossip and uh, tearing one another down? What does it look like to live out the Christian value, the Christian kingdom in a world that doesn't believe like we do? How do we love? How, how do we be winsome in our articulation of the gospel? But more importantly, how do our lives reflect what we actually believe? And so Paul is getting to all of this in, in this letter. He's correcting uh, people in the church. He's encouraging them as they are discouraged. And he's rightly pointing to areas in the church for this Ephesian church about how to practically, tangibly, and even philosophically live out Christianity in their context. And in chapter 3, as we've been studying, he's, per he's putting a particular emphasis on leaders. What does it look like to be a leader in God's church? What does it mean to be a leader? How do we become a leader? What are the qualifications of a leader in God's, God's church? Is it about skill? Is it about charisma? Is it about degrees? Is it about talent? What, what does it mean? And what does it look like? And when Paul writes in chapter 3, starting at verse 1, he says, for anyone that would aspire to that leadership, that that's a good thing. It's a noble thing. And so what I want to talk about today, as we look specifically at the role of deacons, is what does it mean to be a healthy, godly leader? Paul's specifically writing about deacons here, so I contain it to that. But more broadly than that, it is applicable to everyone. Uh, it's not just specific. These qualities and these principles that we see here are not just specific to the leaders of a church, but they are indicative of all of us. What our behavior, if you call yourself a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, what does it mean? What qualities should be represented in you and I uh, in this church, in the, in, in, within the community of this church, but just as important what it means to be that in a world that is looking on and wondering what it is that we believe. So, um, Try to do this relatively quickly, a fairly simple outline. We'll look at the role, the qualities, and the power. The role, the qualities, and the power. Um, I candidly spent more time thinking about how to make an alliteration out of this than I should have. It's like the old pastor in me that wants it all to start with the same letters, but I decided to uh, break that um, and just know that it was an internal challenge. Thank you, thank you. This was by prayer and fasting. Um, so the role, the qualities, and the power. Uh, first of all, let's take a look at the role. Uh, in verse 8, he says, uh, deacons, likewise, uh, deacons are to be worthy of respect. So I want to I uh, zoom out a little bit, try to define what a, what a deacon is, where we see it in the Bible, give us an understanding of deacons, and then we'll dive into the quality. So uh, quickly, definition, the word um, deacon in Greek uh, means uh, diakonos, which simply means servant. The word deacon means 
servant. Uh, the New Testament doesn't, doesn't give us like a ton of information on deacons, but there are a handful of specific passages that refer to deacons that I want to I want to go over for us, just again to give us the context of it. But we don't see it we don't see it a ton um, in the New Testament in in how the form of the church we see it a bit, and then we see it uh, throughout church history as well. So we'll look at a couple passages about it. Uh, probably one of the most um, I guess, uh, famous passages on uh, deacon is one that you might be familiar with. It comes out of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6. Um, there we get this picture that um, the early church has uh, begun to grow. Peter has uh, preached in Acts chapter 2. Thousands of people have responded to this news about Jesus, about Jesus coming into this world and saving them, dying for their sins, being the very fulfillment of the law that they have not been able to see fulfilled throughout Judaism up to that point. And thousands respond to this message. And then we begin to see this early church start to form and figure out what, is it, what does it mean to look like the, the church, the way as they were described. And so we see them praying together. We see them sharing meals together. We see, start to see miracles happen and all this stuff, and, and it continues to grow. In chapter 6, we get to this point where so many people have amassed in the early church that care for each other has started to slip through the cracks. And effectively, the 12 are now overwhelmed by the amount of responsibility that is coming at them. People need to be served. People need to be loved. There are poor people. There are, are widows. There are marital issues. There's all these things that are going on, and they are overwhelmed. And it's coming to the point where care is being, is, has slipped through the cracks, and people are coming forward saying, hey, we got to figure out how to take care of that. Bless you, whoever that was. Um, Sorry, OCD. Um, anyways, so in Acts chapter 6, I'll read it for us. We, we get to see what this looks like. So I'll read Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. You're welcome to turn there. If not, I'll, I have it right here for us. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal in verse five pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nikon, Timar, Parmesan, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So again, we see the early church, this fledgling group of people that have responded to the news about who Jesus is and what he has done on their behalf. They're growing and all these different things are coming at them, these practical concerns that need to be taken care of. And the apostles here identify that with this early church, that the most important thing that they could give their time and attention to is prayer, study, and communicating out to this church. What does it mean to be a Christian? What, is, what did Jesus do for us? The connection between the Old Testament and what has happened. So they are, they are focused on being able to study and pray and to communicate. And therefore, they want to identify other servants other deacons who can be raised up to practically fulfill the needs of this church. And so they identify seven people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, 
have good character, are full of wisdom, and they unleash them to go and to serve. And it's interesting, uh, Luke makes the connection in verse 7 that when this happens, the word of God began to spread and more growth. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And so we see in the early church how important it was to practically serve one another, that we need people, all of us to a certain degree, have this call on our lives to be deacons in the fact that we are called to be servants. And what's interesting too, and we'll get into this uh, further, is that the, the people that the apostles identify are those who are filled with wisdom, filled with God's spirit, and are marked by faith and godly character. And that's a theme I want you just to kind of hold on to as we look through this in terms of qualities uh, in leaders. Uh, another reference, very quickly, we'll look at two more. Another reference is taken uh, from Philippians 1.1. Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Romans 16, Paul writes this in verse 1 and 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sencre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So, couple comments to make on the role, and then we'll get into the qualities. Uh, number one, since um, Anthem's uh, inception, uh, the official role, and, and many of you probably have church experiences and church backgrounds where you come from that you've experienced deacons of various kinds, deacons of finance, deacons of building, deacons of, um, of poor and care for, uh, care for the poor, different things like that. Uh, since the inception of Anthem, uh, deacons in official capacity have not been part of uh, the church structure. However, um, we would look at um, folks who serve in different capacities that would likely fall into the biblical category of deacon. And in light of that, in light of this study, in light of what we've been doing going through 1 Timothy, um, our, our church is starting to take a, a, a look at what does it actually mean to practice and to facilitate the role of deacons within the church. Uh, understanding who would be qualified based on qualities marked out here in Scripture and in other places of what it would mean to be a biblical deacon within the church. That's, that's a study that's going ongoing right now around who would fit the model of deacon within the church based on the Scripture, based on qualities seen in the life of the believer and the role that they would fill. And then lastly, as seen especially here in Romans 16, um, our church would most, most definitely affirm both men and women as deacons within the church. We see that uh, Paul specifically relates to Phoebe as he's writing this closing section in Romans 16 as a deacon within the church. So, that's the context regarding deacons. Um, that's where we see it in the scripture, a bit of how we see it fleshed out. And then we get into greater detail here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 for Paul as he writes. So uh, we'll move from uh, the role to the qualities. So let's look back at our text in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 8. He says this, In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must, hold, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. 
They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Verse 11, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. So as we look at the qualities, uh, we understand from this text that Paul understands that the church needs leaders. The church needs leaders, specifically the church in Ephesus. Um, We know more about the church of Ephesus than we know almost about any other church in all of Scripture. In fact, we actually see the birth to its end um, in, in, in Scripture from Acts 19 all the way through Revelation chapter And so we have a ton of information about the church. We understand a lot to a degree about what it was like in Ephesus, the context, what they were up against as they were trying to plant this church in Ephesus. And Paul rightly affirms this need for leaders. And he makes a connection when he's writing in verse 8. He says, in the same way, or in other translations, he says, likewise. And so he's linking the two passages together around elders and around deacons. And what we primarily see in both of those passages are around specific qualities about what it means to be a leader in the church. And the leaders that Paul is looking for are people who understand who they are committed to Jesus, committed to their families, and committed to living out their faith in such a way that shows how great God is and all that he has done for them. Not perfect leaders. Let's make the real clear distinction. The Bible is very clear and writes very clearly about how sinful and jacked up we are and the mistakes that we make. But the Bible also calls us to be people of strong character and integrity and commitment to who Jesus is. And the leaders that Paul is looking for are those types of leaders. Not perfect by any stretch, but leaders who understand who they are and, how, and desire to live that out in the world and in the church. And this is one of the areas that I think separates Christian leadership from the world's definition of leadership. The concern in Scripture is far more about your identity being rooted in Jesus and our dedication to being formed by him than it is about the skills that you possess. It's, scripture is far more concerned about who you are than really about what you can do and what you can accomplish. And so it removes a bit of the pressure that the world would put on us to uh, need to have certain degrees, need to be charismatic, need to be able to speak, need to be able to write, need to be able to do these massive, huge things. And as we see all throughout scriptures, typically the God, uh, God picks those who generally don't have any of those aspects anyways, but they have hearts that are dedicated to him. We see this really clearly in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16 at verse 7, a verse that's probably familiar to a lot of you. God says this to Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider, talking about Saul, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So as a church, as we consider what does it mean to be leaders, what does it mean to be servants within the church, with outside, outside of the context of the church, what the Bible is looking at, what Paul is looking at, really has more to do with who we are than what we do. 
And so as we look at this, as we continue to look at the text and the qualities, my argument really is that Christian leaders, we must, uh, Christian servants, Christian leaders, we must take seriously our formation and our discipleship to Jesus. That that really has to be paramount in what we do and who we are. And that there's really no way around that because that ultimately is where our power comes from in who we are, not just simply in what we do. Uh, Pete Scazzaro says this really well, I think. He says this, uh, but who you are is more important than what you do. Why? Because the love of Jesus in you is the greatest gift you have to give to others. Who you are as a person, and specifically how well you love, will always have a larger and longer impact on those around you than what you do. Your being with God will trump, eventually, your doing for God every time. We cannot give what we ultimately do not possess. And I think it's a strong and encouraging word to us as for those of us who consider ourselves Christians and believers around what he is saying, that ultimately the love of Jesus in you is the greatest gift that you and I have to offer people. And ultimately, we are unable to possess, to give what we don't possess. And so it's a call for us to uh, be sober-minded and to be reflective on where we sit here and where we stand as it relates to this. So let's look at the qualities that, uh, that Paul lists out. We'll look at four that are in there, and they are very similar. If you look at chapter three, what, what Chris covered last week relative to the section we're in today. Uh, number one, he talks about character. He says deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, and not given to excess drinking. He calls that out twice in both. So I, like Ephesus, they like a lot of wine, a lot of drinking going on. Um, excess drinking. They are not to pursue dishonest gain, indicating that they should have integrity and honesty in all of their dealings. Second, he calls out their faith. He says deacons are expected to hold firmly to the mystery or the deep truths of the Christian faith and maintain a clear conscience in doing so. Third, that they're supposed to be mature. This reference is to spiritually and emotionally mature servants, mature leaders. He says before being appointed as deacons, individuals should be tested to ensure that they meet the necessary qualifications and character. So Paul says, uh, Timothy, before you lay hands on these people, before you make them leaders in the church, I, I want you to see how they live. How do they respond when things don't go their way in life? What comes out of them when they don't get their way, when they don't get their, um, their desires? Is there grace that comes out of it? Is there, um, is there love? Is there compassion? What happens when things go really well for them? Do they tend to get conceited and puffed up and arrogant? What is their character like? I want, I want you to see them uh, tested first. What if you give them a role that, they, that seems beneath them? How do they respond to that? And then finally, we see this again, too, in both of the sections, uh, this emphasis on care for your family. He talks about the family and household. He says, deacons must demonstrate faithfulness to their spouses and to effectively pastor their home first. Uh, in the section prior, he says that we ought to love and serve our families first, and that is a testing ground, a proving ground for our ability to be able to serve God's family well. 
And so the idea is not to sacrifice your family to be able to promote a ministry, but what comes out of your family should be an overflow into your service. And so I love these, and these are in stark contrast to what we see, generally speaking, in the world today as it relates to good leaders, as it relates to high-performing leaders, as it relates to aspirational leaders. It's a call to a quiet life. It's a call to a humble life. It's a call to a serving life. It's a call to sacrificing to the right things and prioritizing the right things over the wrong things life that we care about our character, who we are on the inside, our integrity, that our faith, understanding God and theology and doctrine, and that leading to healthy life and healthy relationships, that we're mature people that are not, again, not perfect, but are continually growing in maturity, and that we pastor and shepherd our families well. So we see the qualities. Now, I wanna get practical um, in the last bit of time that we have, and talk about the power. So all of this is great. So a lot of information, right? We talked about what deacons are, so now you know the Greek, you know the couple passages that were that referred to, we know the qualities, great, we can recite the qualities of what, but how do we actually become these type of people? How do we get the power to actually become the type of servants that Paul is talking about? Servants that create a culture of love and care for one another and also have a compelling witness to a, word, uh, to a world that is looking on who doesn't believe in Christianity. So to do that, I want to try to get as practical as I can, which means I have to just uh, steal all of Dallas Willard's material on this. So anything from this point on is, uh, is not mine by any stretch at all. This is all a regurgitation. Um, but I think the way that we become these people is ultimately about our spiritual formation. And I'll, I'll define what that means. But I think it's ultimately about our spiritual formation, that we ultimately become people who look and act more like Jesus because of time spent with him and with others. So spiritual formation, Dallas Willard defines spiritual formation this way. Spiritual formation into Christ-likeness is the process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it takes on the character of the inner being of Jesus himself. Okay, did you catch that? Spiritual formation into Christ-likeness is the process by uh, forming our inner world, who we are, to look more like Jesus himself. The result is that our outer life of the individual increasingly becomes a natural expression of the inner reality of Jesus and his teaching. Doing what he said and did increasingly just becomes a part of who we are. So Willard's definition of spiritual formation is that our life gets dedicated, our internal life gets dedicated to becoming like Jesus. And by that process, what comes out of us is the actions and life of Jesus. And so as we consider who Jesus was, as we see throughout the four gospels, we can, we can see he's a person that knew his identity through and through. He was not concerned about the crowd's opinion, about people's opinion of him. He was able to serve people, love people. He was good at saying no. He was good at walking away when he needed to walk away. He was good at retreating from the work that he had to do when he needed to. He was good at serving and loving people that were marginalized by society. And every time he was questioned, what flowed out of him was a proper response. 
He cried. He weeped when, when his friends died. He flipped over tables in anger when there was unrighteousness happening in God's church. He was angry. He was sad. He was happy. He exhibited the full realm of human emotions perfectly. And so our call is to, again, in the same way, to become like Jesus in a holistic way where what comes out of us is what came out of Jesus. And so to do that, we need to become more like him. Now, we don't get formed in a vacuum, right? So we don't get to just spend all of our day in the Bible, all of the day in scripture, in Bible studies, listening to podcasts. We have this whole other world outside of this hour and a half here and time in a community group and things like that. And the reality is the rest of the world is deeply trying to form you as well deeply trying to form you and I. Rich Vlotis in his book, Deeply Formed Life, says it this way, whether we know it or not, or see it or not, or understand it or not, we are always at risk of being shallowly formed. We are formed by our false selves, our family of origin, the highly manipulated presentations of social media, and the value system of a world that determines worth based on accomplishments, possessions, efficiency, intellectual acumen, and gifts. So we need to regularly, we need to be regularly called back to the essence of our lives in God. That essence is of one of ongoing transformation that is Christ being formed in you. And so who you are is far more important than what you do. But the good news is, is that as you and I are formed, what comes out of us, what comes out of us is amazing things by the help of God. And so it's this compelling vision for you and I to not only become like Jesus so that we can more effectively serve, but when you look at Jesus and the life that he lives, the pace, the every, everything about him, he is a man that is by far worth emulating. He shows us what it truly looks like to be human. He's not, he doesn't care about the things that you and I care about. And as, as believers, our life is to be dedicated to looking more like him. And then out of that, then comes the action. See, I think we, we often get it reversed where we just muscle and try to do as hard as we can. I know I need to be like Jesus. I know I shouldn't cuss this person out. I like, like slap the other cheek part. Yep, I get that. Yes, I know I need to give. Yes, I know I like shouldn't tell everybody about this really cool thing that I'm doing because God says to do that stuff in silent and he sees this, all this stuff that we struggle with and we try to like muscle these things through. But what Dallas Willard points out is as we become more like him, these things become natural. But the question is, where does your formation come? Again, I'll quote uh, Willard one more time as he writes in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, the ideal of spiritual life in the Christian understanding is one where all of the essential parts of the human self are effectively organized around God all of the essential parts. That means your mind, that means your emotions, that means your heart, that means your bodies. Every bit is effectively organized around God as they are restored and sustained in him. Spiritual formation in Christ is the process leading to that ideal end. And its result is love of God with all of heart, with all of soul, and with all of strength, and of the neighbor as oneself. The human self is then fully integrated under God. 
the picture that we get in Scripture through Jesus, through the New Testament, is to become holistic disciples of Jesus. And then out of that flows the character and the qualities that are represented here in this text to be elders, to be deacons, to be servants and leaders of the church, that those begin to flow out of who we are. Imperfectly, to be sure. Messed up, jacked up, screwed up, no question about it. But again, what separates Christianity from so much of the rest of the world's philosophies, the rest of the world's religion, is our belief is in the gospel that Jesus came to restore our brokenness. That when we were created first, we were created in perfect unity with God, with ourselves, with the world. And then when sin entered in and fractured all of that, we live in this perpetual brokenness as humanity. It's why religious or not, when you look at the news, when you look out at the world, you look and you go, things should not be this way. People shouldn't do these types of things. We shouldn't have these types of wars, these types of crimes. Leaders shouldn't act in this way. And what separates Christianity is God says, I'm not going to let that go on forever. I'm not going to let that brokenness go on forever. I'm not going to let the brokenness in you go on forever. And so at the right time, he sends Jesus to live the life that you and I could not live as a perfect human being, fully holistic, integrated into his life and relationship with the Father. And then he dies this brutal, agonizing death that you and I should die because of our sin and our rebellion and our rejection to God. And then three days later, he rises from the grave and conquers sin, Satan, and death on our behalf. And as a gift for you and I, he invites us to trust him, to believe in him, and start this process of making you and I new and making you and I whole. So the areas that are deeply broken with us and that are fractured in us start to, day by day, get a little bit closer to wholeness get a little bit closer to being put back together, being a little bit closer to being able to be seen and felt and experienced as a full human alive, and then ultimately culminating when God fixes and restores everything. And we see the culmination of that when he says that there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more brokenness, there will be no more decay, there will be just Jesus with his people in the flesh. And that's the day we look for, that's the day we long for, and that's the opportunity given to us as believers and non-believers alike to invite Jesus in and to begin to become more like him. And those are, these are the leaders that we desperately need in church today. People that are incredibly self-aware of our failures and our faults and our issues and that are desperately trying to form ourselves to Jesus. To, to go against the tide of culture that we hear, that is, as I quoted, that we hear through, through the internet, through social media, through, through books, through our family of origin, through our own identity, to be able to reject those narratives and continue to try to align ourselves with Jesus. So how do we do that? We do that through our community, We do that through our vulnerability. We do that through time together. We do that through sitting in silence and being in the presence of Jesus. We do that through Sabbath by rejecting the urge of the world to say that you are defined by what you do. 
So as an act of rebellion against that, we take time out of our weeks to acknowledge the fact that more, it is more important, than who, or more important of who we are than what we do. And we begin to, we continue to bring these practices into our lives so that what comes out of us is the hope of Jesus to the rest of the world. And, and the good news about that is it's a lifelong process that we're invited into with Jesus. With a light yoke, with an easy burden, with, a, with new grace every single day for us to continue to walk in that. So my encouragement to us as we wrap, and I'll invite the worship team to come up, the deacons that were needed, the servants that were needed in, in the church in Ephesus, the elders, the overseers that Paul talks about in Ephesus, we need those same leaders today. Desperately, the church is in desperate need for these types of leaders. Again, leaders who understand their identity that is marked by Jesus and that are continually trying to submit their lives to the easy yoke and the light burden of Jesus and remembering the great story that we have been invited into, that your identity, who you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, is loved. And that the end of the story is Jesus culminating and redeeming and fixing all things. But until then, we have this amazing opportunity to, within our own body, to give a foretaste of heaven by our love, by our forgiveness, by our compassion. And then we get to demonstrate that through our character and our integrity of who we are to the rest of the world on why this kingdom is so much better than, the, than what the world has to offer. Why the kingdom that you and I are a part of in Jesus is so much better and more satisfying and more hopeful and a better identity and better peace than anything that any other philosophy or any other world religion has to offer. And we get to do it together and to celebrate who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. And Jesus, thank you that you are the ultimate deacon, that you are the ultimate servant, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life a ransom for many. And Father, I pray for us um, as we try to follow you and to become more like you, that you'd help us to take on your easy yoke and your light burden, and that you'd help us to become people more like you, Jesus, and that what would flow out of us would be love and would be patience and would be grace and would be a passion for the vulnerable and a passion for injustice. And would you help us, Jesus, to look more and more like you as we submit all of our lives to you. We thank you that you have saved us, Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the cross, that you were willing to take all of our sin and our punishment that was rightly due to us on yourself so that we could stand here forgiven and clean and redeemed because of what you've done. So give us hope, give us help by your spirit to become more like you so that the world might see this countercultural kingdom. We love you, Jesus, and it's for your beautiful name. Amen.